Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about Germany. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com, and as always, I'm joined by our irascible co-host, Dilly Algemer, and stalwart producer, Simon Josie, to discuss the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. Hey, both of you, how are you doing? I, me, um, I'm, um, I don't know, my, my Dilly, pause. Man, how many weeks? How many weeks are we going to do this? <laughs> no, my pause was a statement. I'm on strike against. Oh, yeah, right. I'm, okay. I'm, my strike is based on. Yeah. I have feelings too, Nick. Let's you didn't think to tell us beforehand, Dilly, that you were going to do this? Um, yeah. Usually there's an announcement of these things, right? You usually I, I, announce I don't know. That you're I don't like that strike, kind of strike. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to go on strike. <laughs> Brace yourselves. Let me, let me find a replacement for you. I mean, then what's the point of striking and being an inconvenience? Um, I, I rather like the idea of spontaneous strikes. I do like, I mean, it's a wildcat strike. I think that's what they call it, right? Where they just appear out of nowhere. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very uh, of the moment, that statement. <laughs> I think I think it classes as satire. Are we satirists now? Oh, that's very <laughs> exciting. You've, you've, raised, you've raised the level of this podcast uh, much higher than it was before. I mean, uh, I, I don't want to say gratitude, but it's thanks to you and your use of irascible. Ah, so you're on strike because of the use of, I thought irascible was mm -hmm. a pretty accurate depiction. You're, you're quick to anger, right? And irascible is Is it is anger a that word. I'm showing you? Well, I mean, the last three weeks you've seemed pretty uh, pretty angry, I would say. Is um, it anger? Uncontrollable it's, in parts. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a range of emotions. We are, we are, I mean, emotions are a tapestry, right? Is, is it tapestry? <laughs> Fuck me. Tapestry. I think it might be tapestry. Yeah. <laughs> Not to correct your English or anything. But I think it's it's very it's very of the moment that you're going on strike for the fact that it feels like everyone's on bloody strike at the moment. Um I talked about the the, the sort of um winter of discontent, which it feels like we've we've sort of entered with the new year. And I was yeah. like, is the what's the German for winter of discontent? So I looked it up. We've got Winter der Unzufriedenheit. Winter is, der um, Unzufriedenheit, yeah. I'm not sure if that's a good translation, but uh, there's another one that I can't pronounce properly because it's Winter des Missvergnügens. Nugens. There's an umlaut in there. It's very hard oh, for me. Oh, fuck those me. Bloody, yeah. see, those hidden in umlauts next to two consonants. That seems a little bit unfair. Does Simon um, do umlauts? It's German. No. Yeah. Do you do umlauts, Simon? Well, there's a big joke in my family that I can't say Kuhn properly without <laughs> making a mess of it, so... I'm kind of traumatized by the whole umlaut thing. G give me, give me your rendition of of Köln. Köln. I just did. All oh, right, do it again. I'm not, I'm not doing it again. I'm not going to say it three times or twice. <laughs> he said Köln. Like, like Colonel. Uh, it's Köln. Köln. Is that right? But that's what I said. Köln. See, I hate this. This is just. Yeah. We, ah, it's that thing with where you uh, you say exactly what you're hearing and people go, no, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> you say, oh, God. Um, yeah, so before we get to the the, the Winter der Unzufriedenheit uh, or the Winter of Discontent and all the strikes that are happening, let's talk about something that's non-strike related. Dilly, you were, you were sharing with us in the podcast WhatsApp group a book about British plants. Are you become an Anglophile? Is that what's happening? Oh, you wish, Nick, because uh, this was actually not British plants. It's you are in Bayern, as you never, as you always. Uh... Shit, Amma, who? No one told me. Someone get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so um, last week I mentioned this beautiful little bookshop in the Netherlands that I went to. In the same bookshop, I found a gorgeous book, a hardcover, huge thing. It's about a botanical garden, the first botanical garden in Germany. It was in Eichstätt. It was commissioned, interestingly, by the bishop who was also a prince. This wonderful book is called Hortus Eichstätensis, The Bishop's Garden and Bessler's Magnificent Book. So Nicholas Barker is supposedly the author I think he was attached to the, the British Museum and he put together this wonderful book collecting like paintings of all the plates that were done on the plants and shrubs that were found in this garden. Well, the garden of Eichstätt is still there. 
though very probably not the same plans it probably has evolved over the years but it was supposed to be a collection of all the plants and shrubs that were known at the time all over the world and i thought since the garden is still there that maybe nick might like to pay a visit and tell us whether it's worth worth our time but in spring when it reopens again yeah i mean i definitely don't want to go in the minus uh, 8 weather that we've got at the moment but i was looking at it actually i've i've been i've been past it a few times i just didn't realize where it was cuz it's in it's in located i think in the monastery but it's the bastion's garden is what it's called the Eichstätter Bastion's garden and it's in the bastion it's in the the the, the monastery right yeah. um but yeah i've, I've I, I would definitely i mean I, I i first off i don't like the precedent that we're setting where you set me homework that's the first thing but given given oh, that no. that is happening i'll happily go and <laughs> i'll happily go and check out these gardens uh you know me i like a bit of a, a bit of history and to go to the first botanical gardens is certainly something that's worth checking out i think yeah it's funny that word isn't it the, the hortus eichstetensis that's a funny word yeah it is right because this is this is the book right it's a it's a it's a really old book as well it was first published in 1613 apparently wait a minute let's see when this was published Ah, one for ebay i'm assuming it's a hardback if you've got a 1613 copy you're doing well it says first published in 1994. well it says all i all i can say is that's what it tells me on wikipedia so we've got a fight on our hands Ah, this must be the American version because it says published in North Boo! and South America. American version. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> Boo! <laughs> but oh, the nice thing is, okay, I don't mean it. there are two things that I note about this book, Nick, which might intrigue you and actually, you know, it might compel you to complete my homework set for you. I mean, if you are the prince and a bishop, I think it's a, there's a conflict of interest in the town. Like, I mean, what do you say? Um, oh, you know, does he get two votes? And is he like, oh, I'll have to ask the bishop about this. And then he asks himself before he gives an answer to people. Now, the title Prince Bishop is quite, it was quite a common one. It's definitely a common one in the Holy Roman Empire. But it's, it was um, the, the area around Durham in the northeast of England is called the land of the Prince Bishops. And it's simply all it means is that the archbishop or bishop had spiritual power as a bishop, but also had secular power within the territory that they controlled as a bishop. So that's all it really, really defines. It's not that they're actually princes so much, but they did, uh, they did sometimes get a nice hat or like a mantle to indicate their princely status, but it's, it's just that they have secular power. And it's quite common, especially in, in, in a place like the Holy Roman empire that had lots of little statelets and little little um, sort of mini, mini states, mini countries. Did you fellas practice this little dialogue beforehand? Or no, what? I just or studied, are you reading off I Wikipedia? Just, What's just, going on? I just studied history. Sorry. I apologize. <laughs> I paid attention. <laughs> <laughs> because it says here, the palace of Johann Conrad von Gemmingen, Bishop of Eichstätt. And like, if you have a palace and you're a prince and you're also the Bishop of Eichstätt, mm, I'm... I mean, I'm sure the garden and its plants were interesting, but I'm, I, I wonder whether there was anything else. Are you suggesting that there might have been ooh, some corruption or something going on? I'm guessing that there was a town uh, with a lot of pitchforks. No, no. I mean, I'm just looking on his um, on on Johann Conrad von Gemmingen's um, Wikipedia, mm-hmm. and uh, he was the third of eight children. So it's if he's the third son. Or the third born, he's definitely gonna. Because you usually, what would happen is your first born son would take over the the land. The second born son would maybe go into the military, and the third born son would usually go into religious orders. But like, remember, this is sort of the 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 sixteenth century. So, uh, becoming a religious representative doesn't necessarily mean you can't have a lot of fun as well. Uh, oh, it's pretty much how it works now. So, um, oh, sorry, apologies to your father. No, no, I mean, he's retired, so he's definitely having fun. But no, I mean, it wasn't there the story of the of the bishop in somewhere in Germany that had like a golden Porsche or something? There's a lot of like dodgy corruption going I'm on. I'm guessing this was not in the 17th century. 
No, he didn't have a Porsche in the 17th century mm -hmm. because Porsche had not been invented at that point. But I'm sure he accumulated a lot of wealth and power um, in his hands. I mean, I've, it, a lot of this is coming from the fact that I've spent most of Christmas reading that I promised myself I was going to get that book, Ger Germany in the World, the book my dad recommended by um, David Blackburn. And mm -hmm. uh, I've been reading that since the start of Christmas. So I'm sort of running parallel. You're getting the details, stories about botanical gardens and, and so on and so forth. And I'm getting the, the, the macro perspective of what's happening within the, those time periods. But yeah, um, I definitely get to check it out. Mm -hmm. the, anything to get the kids out of the house, for God's sake. <laughs> anything to get, get me out of my home. <laughs> Nick, you say so you, that you've seen this monastery and that you've driven past it. Can I ask you a question? Go ahead. Because it says here that Hortus Estetensis was the name of a garden that grew around a castle on top of a rock. And that you managed to have all the plants known to humankind on top of a rock in a country that is very cold, to me is a wonder. Is, is it really that, that high up? I mean, it's, it's on like a hill. Ah. Are there palm trees? No, there aren't. I don't, I'm, not that that's, I could observe outside the building, but perhaps mm. potentially inside. But no, I mean, if you go to um, Eichstatt, you, you, you sort of, you, you can't miss it. It's one of the first things you see as you, you sort of drive in because it, it dominates the landscape. I mean, that's the tendency as well. If you drive around Bavaria, it's all like that. There's, there's a, a road that goes between Nuremberg and, and Augsburg called the Beetzwei. And that's full. If you look at the top of hills, you'll often see a monastery and... It's, it's always worth checking out a monastery as well, because most of the time, at least in my experience, they have usually have a beer garden and you can drink some amazing beer that's brewed by monks. Uh, and and the, like, the oldest monastic brewery is in, in near Regensburg, I think. And um, that's been brewing beer since the 14th century. And uh, I mean, there's nothing like drinking beer that's been mastered over several centuries. <laughs> That's a that's a good drink. So uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Nick, since you're the historian here, can I ask you another question? So, Wolf, yes. Thank you. So I'm from Gießen in Germany, in Hessen, and there we have a monastery, and it's and Gießen is as flat as it gets. Um, but the monastery is on the highest hill of Gießen. Why are all the monasteries on top of hills? There's no sort of reason why they have to be on top of a hill it mm -hmm. could be for various reasons it could be because when it, it depends when it was built if it's a really old monastery it might be because it dominates the the area and it's a focal point remember like monasteries were essentially your sanctuary your hospital your social services your religious services everything was in, it was in, encompassed inside a monastery mm -hmm. so if you were a traveler and, and especially if you're a pilgrim, maybe heading towards Rome or mm. even possibly heading towards the Holy Land and you're going through this area, you probably stop at a monastery. They'll probably feed you, especially if you're a noble. So it's, it, it works as a, a way of promoting the fact that there's a monastery in this area or it could just be for travelers so they can see where they're going. It, various different things. Is there symbolism associated with it being closer to heaven? Could mm. be, could be. But then if you think about the, the, the monastery I just mentioned that's near Regensburg, yeah, Weltenberg Abbey, um, or the, the Weltenberger Klosterbrauerei, which is located quite near, is actually, it's a very, you can only access the monastery by boat. So it actually sits on, in, in a little bay just under a, a small um, um, cliff face and you have to cross a river by boat to get to it. So it's not always necessary that they're going to be on top of something. But um, yeah, I mean, especially those, the, the, especially those monasteries which would be welcome into pilgrims would generally be placed in somewhere that you could see them. Um, but it could also be, it could also, depends what the monastic group is. Mm. For instance, if they're, um, I forget all the different groups, you've got like Franciscans and you, you've got uh, Dominicans. I forget who it is, is it who take, you generally take vows of silence. Um, but if you, if you take a vow of silence as a monk, you may not want loads of people coming to and fro and going, excuse me, can you tell me the directions too? And then you can't actually speak to them. You just want to brew your beer in peace. It could be that. It could be any number of different reasons why, because just to get away from, from the, the dirty peasantry, perhaps. Mm -hmm. 
Well, this particular um, botanical garden is also on top of a hill that is surrounded and separated from the town by a river. So, it, I mean, it mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be like, I mean, if you're a thirsty, hungry traveler, I mean, the last thing you want to do is swim across the raging waters of the river to get some bread. I mean, it depends how starving you are, I guess. Uh, mm. it's, it, it, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think as well, it's um, it, it's kind of nice. I don't know. I quite like it. I quite like driving around and spotting these kind of um, these monasteries, and they're still going because it's something we don't have in Britain because all the monasteries were were shut down during the Reformation. So, like, mm. it's something we don't really have. And and I actually, as I point out to a lot of my students, it's possibly the reason why British beer is so so shitty. Because a lot of the beer that's been brewed in Germany has been brewed by monks for a very long time, and it's kept that culture going certainly in Bavaria. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas we lost we lost wholesale this aspect of British culture, or at least English culture, during the the, the 16th century. Do you ever wonder when did beer actually start to taste good? Because the first the first few um, crates must have been pretty awful, right? So so why did they think okay, we'll persist with this; it'll get better. What, what you know? <laughs> <laughs> what motivated them to keep going is that's one thing is like and how long did it take before beer started to look like beer that we see today i the complete novice at this want to tackle the first question and 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 guess that perhaps it was the actual consumption of your uh faulty goods that made you think oh yeah we should persist with this but that's just my guess i mean it's one of those it's one of these niche topics that like, oh, I love these these aspects of history. Like one of my favorite favorite things I read at university was was a, an article that questioned whether the question was what came first, beer or bread. And one of the arguments that was being made was that bread only originated because people wanted to transport beer more effectively, and it was easier to transport bread than it was to transport beer. And the idea was that bread would be dissolved in water and create essentially instant beer. How true that is. It's, by the by, but it's it's a theory at least. But the um, the, the reason well, brewing beer essentially was a way of cleaning water, hmm. right? So what you would actually have in that period, like the wealthy would drink wine, but the common person would drink what they call small beer, which is like two to three percent beer, and everyone would drink it. Kids, parents, everyone, and so essentially it was one of those beautiful things about the um, the Middle Ages and, and the past. Is the assumption is that the peasantry were all like toothless ingrates who like died at the age of age of ten, you know. But actually, they didn't eat a lot of sugar, so their teeth would be would be very 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 solid, and they'd be quite muscular and strong because they're working in the fields. They eat very healthy diets of vegetables and grains, and they'd mostly be half cut because they're <laughs> just drinking small <laughs> beer all day, drinking two to three percent, like just nicely toasted all the way mm. through the day. As they're plowing the fields for the for the lordships, and the original kind of idea was that the beer would be brewed like all day, basically, and it was actually it's one of the jobs that women had initially was to brew the beer, and um, it wasn't until you get to kind of the higher Middle Ages, moving into the early modern period, where that that role is assumed by men and by corporations, so. Most of the time, the brewing of beer was probably just a necessity. And then once it became less and less a necessity and it became like a commodity, I think that's when you start to see expertise. But but you would see monks, monks would have the opportunity to to try out new things maybe in a way that the peasantry couldn't. And obviously that's really good for feast days and things like that. And and obviously there's tax to be collected on beer, so it it sort of has a it has a, a lot of reasons why you might have a monastery brewing beer is it's part of just the economy of the monastery. They they grow vegetables and they brew beer and they collect arms for the poor and all of these different things. So that's possibly what one of the reasons why the beer became a a kind of preserve of of monks. I hope that's a a suitable answer for you there, Simon. Well, yeah, okay. Until it's been verified, I, I'll take it for now. <laughs> He's never happy, is he? He's never happy. Um, yeah, shame. Um, I'll tell you what made me really happy today. It's the first time I got to test out my new 
um, thermal long johns because it's been really cold. Tell me. Honestly, I've, it's changed my life. <laughs> it really has. This is a first for you, isn't it? It really is. I would never, never have done it in the past. I think you've proudly told us in the past that you never wear these things and you sort of turn your nose at them like, like bicycles. And or have you got have you got a trauma from your childhood about? <laughs> I can't remember what was I shouting about airports last week. Airports, bicycles, cars. Well, whatever. You, you, I sort of dumped on you once for hating on bicycles, and it, it turned out then you had some sort of childhood tra- trauma with with the bicycle. I'm now thinking you must have had some sort of long john trauma as, as a kid. No, I think I think it's rather more the fact that. Um, Partially, it's to do with the fact that coming from the northeast of England, it, you're kind of you're kind of raised to believe that wearing coats and and that kind of stuff is kind of ridiculous. Also, it's not that cold in the northeast of England compared to here, and I have resisted it. And it was easy to resist when I had a car that had seat heating and would warm up quite quickly. I used to drive a, a Volkswagen up that um, was very easy to heat, and so I didn't need to worry about. Like the amount of time that I'd be spending outside was was the bare minimum, and now that I'm commuting more and more and walking to work, it's become a bit more of a necessity. And actually, the other week when I was really sick, that was the first time it went into the heavily into the minus uh, numbers, and um, it was so cold, and I was so sick, and it was so like it, it impacted me so much that I think oh, the day after, um, the first day I was actually sick, I think I ordered ordered the long johns mm. knowing that i would need them again in the future but honestly it felt like i got out of the house and i was walking into work and i mm. just didn't feel cold wow like my hands felt cold yeah. when i took my gloves off my face was really cold because mm. this was minus eight minus nine but the rest of me didn't and especially when i was waiting for the tram this afternoon mm. i was just like oh god i'm so glad i got these you know it really mm. it's just keeping me warm it's keeping me feeling feeling fine really um, so, so yeah, I would, uh, I'd highly recommend it to anyone. If you don't, if you don't have already, pick some up. Are they, um, synthetic or are they merino wool? Mm. I don't know. I just got them from, uh, Zalando. So I just clicked on the ones that looked like they were the, the, the full, the full shebang. But I think it's, uh, I think they're synthetic to be honest. Yeah. Because I was going to ask you if you'd like to share a brand name and you said, uh, you, I, I gather that you don't know the brand. It's, it's some stupid name. He, I mean, I'm not going to give us the brand. I'm He's not just gonna... not telling us. They're Jack Wolfskin, aren't they? <laughs> they're Jack Wolfskin. Oh. Under Roos. No, they're not. They're not Jack Wolfskin. I can promise you. It's, I forget the name of the company, but I'll be damned if I'm giving them free advertising. If you're a Long John's company and you want to advertise on the podcast, you know how, where the email is. So go right ahead. <laughs> It's not just uh, it's not just the cold weather that people have been kind of concerned about. There's been a lot of flood warnings certainly since I came back last week. There's been a lot of flood warnings mm. and concerns about floods um, across across um, the the east. Definitely, there's a bit. There was flood warnings in up, up where you are, Simon. Is that right? Uh, well, the Rhine has certainly been very full, but I think well, yeah, to the the north of the state. So where it sort of flattens out a bit north of. K- 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 Cologne. Yeah. <laughs> Cheat. <laughs> um, yeah, so up there around, I think, Dortmund, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is a little bit off to the east, I guess. Um, and then in Niedersachsen, which I guess is Lower Saxony, isn't it? Which is the far north and borders the Netherlands uh, right up there in the north, which is just a big flat pancake up there. It's yeah. pretty featureless and flat. Yeah, it's North North Rhine-Westphalen's the place that got was that had the heavy flooding during the election. Is that right? During the election in twenty twenty one. Uh yeah, but that was that was a completely that was sort of a different area. That was in the R Valley, and that was where the water was funneled down. A lot of water fell very very quickly and, and funneled down the the valleys. So, oh, there, actually, there was a bit of flooding out um, to the. To the west of Cologne, and the flat area as well, but but yeah, yeah, it was mainly the the devastation was mainly in the mm. in the valleys, the the sharp, deep valleys of the Ar Valley. As far as I'm aware, though, the the flood defences have generally held in most places, despite the warnings. But there was a curious story that that uh, you came across there, Simon, about 
um, what was the term they used? It's, it's unbelievable when I read this term, but um, apparently there's, there's a massive issue in certain areas with Hochwasser Touristen or um, flood tourists. And these are people yeah. turning up to enjoy the floods, essentially. Uh, you want to give us a bit more info on that? Well, yeah, with, with all this water appearing in places where it doesn't usually appear, there were all sorts of water sports taking place. And I mean just water sports, um, which meant... <laughs> which There's people are going to be very confused by that statement. Look <laughs> it up, people. Yeah. Google Get it. Dictionary. We're not, not going to do it for you. All I'm saying is Donald Trump, Russian hotel. That's all I'm saying. So, yeah, so people turned up with canoes. Some people even went swimming in it. Um, apparently someone was seen with a, with a, a wetsuit and a, and a swim cap on and they'd uh, been in and had a bit of a dip. But even somewhat outrageously, people were um, kite surfing on on this, these bodies of water. And, okay, I, I feel I maybe have been passed a bit of a hospital pass here with this story because I suspect that maybe Nick is setting me up to be the old man shouting at clouds because I tend to have quite a bit of sympathy with the emergency services who were mightily pissed off with this behaviour. Uh-huh. It seems if you, if you read all the stories about the, the flooding, and the flooding is it's really only just subsiding now um, with the with the cold patch and the dry the dry weather that we're experiencing across the whole of Germany at the moment. But before that, the emergency services, um, particularly the the fire departments, the, the I guess the voluntary fire mm. departments, were working really hard to to prevent flooding or uh, damage or damage to the to, to people's houses and things like that. I, I saw some news stories about um, basements flooding, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as you would expect. Um, and so they're pretty pissed off when uh, when they get these stories of like, oh, we saw two canoeists and uh, we haven't seen them, or maybe they haven't come back, or and suddenly there's a whole big story about, oh, maybe there's some canoeists missing, or there's a swimmer missing in the water, and then they sort of have to stop doing all their flood uh, retention or the, the, the embankment work that they're doing, tools down, and they have to go looking for these people. So I, I do actually have quite a bit of sympathy with the emergency services because they're pretty stretched, and there's no good reason for people to be out doing their water sports uh, on these bodies of water. It's just causing so much hassle and trouble for the, the emergency services. I know you, you assumed that I was setting you up for some kind of uh, old man moment, but not at all. I totally agree with you, which might be shocking in itself. Like reading about the people in the article that, that I found, like a, a, a woman uh, spotted somebody who was uh, being swept away by the current who decided to go for a swim. Um, there's someone who was spotted getting out of the water in a wetsuit and riding away on a bike. Um, there was a couple who had to be rescued because they they this is the most german thing ever right mm-hmm. there's a couple uh, i think in their 70s i think it said it said um, two cyclists over 70 years old had to be rescued who wanted to cycle on roads closed due to flooding and were swept away by the current it's like do you remember when i told you we talked about the drivers who were like the, the they seem to assume that the law will defy the rules of physics right and that like i can drive 50 and if i drive 50 everyone else will just get out of my way on a on a sort of quiet street or if i drive 200 and something on the autobahn people will move out of the way because it's the rule right rather than maybe driving 200 kilometers an hour up the arse of another car is not the most sensible thing in the world given how things can change rapidly um around you um it seems like this is like translated to these this couple in their 70s who are like well i mean we want to ride on this road i don't care if it's flooded i want to ride on it me what about me and what I want? <laughs> it's just bizarre. Very, very bizarre. I just wanted to add that I also live uh, by a, a very like, important, large, long river here in Weissenfels in Sachsen-Anhalt. I live by the Saale and I cross the Saale uh, via a footbridge where cars aren't allowed to get to the train station every day. And I have noticed how like the river is rising and now the banks are overflown with water. Yeah. And uh, the water looks so, the water looks very rough. And the, you can see like circles and pools of water doing mm-hmm. their own thing. It's scary. 
And also the water feels, I mean, it looks very thick and I'm assuming it's because it's very cold or maybe it's my imagination. I assume that there is a, uh, a state of water between flowing and, and freezing. <laughs> No, I know what you mean. It's a very good, it's very evocative description because it is when you see a river that is that is is sw swollen. Mm. It does have, it does tend to have like there, there is like a uh, what's the word? Word slushy? Of to is it, it slushy? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. To me, when it's swirling, when you see a river swirling like that with its own little eddies that pass by, I always think that looks very angry. Yeah, it's an angry looking yeah. river. Yeah. I, is that currents? Is that what I mean? Currents are usually not noticeable to the naked eye on the surface, are they? Uh, well, to a seasoned observer, I believe they are. Mm -hmm. um, if you talk about sea currents and things like that, you can actually see sea currents. You can see, particularly in the UK, where tidal activity is really extreme. What I'm talking about is the is the difference between the high water mark and the low water mm -hmm. mark. So. As you go around the world, the, the, the difference between the high watermark and the low watermark is, is not the same. Mm -hmm. So actually you get more dramatic changes of tides in different places. And the UK in particular is, is famous for it. They're into the lesson. Mm -hmm. oh, that's good. Um, we were getting through all the topics. Maths next. No, um, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, please. But yeah, I, I, it does seem, it, it, there is the, there's something that this story reminded me of, of there was a spate of, of people videoing like car crashes on roads and stuff or there was like a big issue there was a big call out a few years ago because emergency services were having to fight their way through rubbernecking kind of people who were um, staring at car accidents in order to actually get to the emergency that they'd been called out for i know certainly immigrants to germany will notice quite often how germans have a propensity to stare more than the more than the average certainly more than the average british person and Germans will often get very upset when that's mentioned. But I think it links into this, this desire to just stare at stuff. Um, and uh, I think this is just an extension of that, that instinct. You, d you don't think the tendency to rubberneck is universal? I think it is universal. It's just how you approach the rubbernecking, right? <laughs> there's the subtle rubberneck, and then there's the walking up to it and videoing it <laughs> rubbernecking. <laughs> <laughs> which is more the German approach. Stopping the car and getting out to... Yeah. Exactly, to ask questions and take photographs. What's the difference between a good protest and a bad protest? Well, it's a question that has been preoccupying minds in Germany a lot recently. It was a major theme through 2023 as Last of Generation made waves by gluing themselves to roads and disrupting political speeches and even painting the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. And uh, the general consensus among large sections of the media and across the political spectrum has been to harshly criticize these protests by the Letzte Generation for blocking the roads, as I mentioned. Uh, and they claim there's been reductions in productivity because of traffic and prevention of emergency vehicles from reaching their uh, destinations. Now, it's debatable how fair these accusations are, and even less evidence has been presented for um, that argument. But there's certainly been an angry reaction and a lot of media coverage, especially during last summer. Because I don't know about you guys, it felt like every day there was a video of some angry commuter physically manhandling a, a passive protester or punches being thrown. And there was that moment where an insane incident of a, a truck driver almost running someone over, uh, which happened around about August. Now though, the debate over rights to protest has taken a completely new turn. Um, since the end of December, German farmers have been up in arms about the proposed measures to cut diesel subsidies and other subsidies related uh, in part to the failure of the government budget and the need to um, institute cuts and, and austerity measures in certain areas. Uh, this in turn led to an ad hoc protest on the 18th of December, which saw tractors blocking streets, but mostly being driven up to a, a rally around the Brandenburg Gate. But on Monday, where we saw the beginning of a week-long nationwide protest across all 16 Bundesländer involving tractors blocking roads, slow, slow convoys, rallies, and so forth um, across the country uh, in support of, of farmers and the desire for, for cuts not to hit them too harshly. I don't know, what, what do you guys make of these protests? Um, have you perhaps been caught up in them at all? I have been affected by it as one is usually supposed to be by a strike. And yeah. 
I, th- I think I also know a few people who are taking part in the strikes, which makes it very interesting. Uh, a couple of farmers in the area. Um, I do have in the back of my mind this little skepticism of, I mean, we are cheering them on and it's quite, I mean, people should be able to strike. That's that's basic and that's right. But the aspect of the inconvenience and seeing climate activists pasting or gluing themselves to, to the roads and things and paintings, uh, why are we not reacting the same to climate activists when they strike? There's been a lot more support for farmers striking mm-hmm. than certainly for, for, for the Let's Generation and, and there's been various arguments presented for that. Yeah. But it is noticeable that the support for the farmers blocking streets is quite high, whereas the support for climate activists blocking streets is, is, is not. That is certainly an aspect of, of what we're seeing. Um, Simon, what about you? Well, I guess if I had gone out on Monday, I might have been affected. But It's um, fine if you don't leave the house, right, Simon? <laughs> <laughs> I actually did leave the house twice on Monday because there were two dog walks. Yeah, right. But I had no reason to go further than that. <laughs> there's no there's no one pulling up in a tractor stopping you from walking the dog. There wasn't. Um, my wife was caught up in, in traffic because mm-hmm. uh, most of the most of the protests around here aren't focused particularly on um, uh, on the city. There was, there's a protest in Augsburg tomorrow in the Plera where they usually have the um, Volksfest, but the most of the protests yesterday were focused on the Landstrasse, which are the the sort of country roads essentially. And my wife was trying to get back from her parents and she said every single roundabout she hit had a tractor blocking it oh, no. and just had queues and queues of people and it made me wonder like who's affected by it mm. like the people are like ordinary people are affected mm. by it and obviously strike if you it's, everyone's got the right to strike that is not even debatable but i do wonder if this might be overplaying their hand slightly although there is support for farmers it does feel like if you piss off the average person enough I think initially there was a lot of support for Let's Generation before they started gluing themselves on mass to streets. Mm-hmm. I wonder how long it could last, the, the sort of well-wishing of farmers mm. when they're doing something like this and actually inconveniencing people. Germans don't like to be inconvenienced. I'm mm. not sure if you've noticed. Uh, I'm, I, I just want to note here at this point that the strike is about to get so much worse tomorrow with the train, the GDL, the GDL um, train strike. So we have the combination of these two protests happening all at once where you've got, like you said, roads blocked by tractors and um, an inability to get trains, which is where the winter of discontent comes in, I think. And and you are right about discontent not quite uh, nicely translating into uh, Unzufriedenheit because that is like unhappiness. And discontent is something a little, uh, it has more depth to it than unhappiness. And, And it's not as temporary, I have a feeling. Yeah, I, I, f- I feel like you might have a point there. I understand the discontent. I um, I was told that uh, train drivers in Germany, uh, I mean, what they make, they are like 44,000 to 50 something thousand euros a, mu- a year, not a month. I'm sorry, that's very bad maths. Um, that, and I can completely imagine why you would want to strike. I, um, I mean, you, you have like very set timetables, long distance train rides. Uh, you want less hours with more money. I'm completely for that. And people should be be able to live the lives they want on on the jobs that they do. I am living my own particular nightmare because I might not be able to make it to work tomorrow or the next day mm. or on Friday. Although... The school is extremely understanding about this. I might be, I'm, I'm one of the few people who come to work by train. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, with, with, with the farmers, it's a, an issue surrounding these subsidies that they've been paid for, for certainly for the diesel subsidies, a big one. But the, um, for the, the, the train union strike is to do with the, uh, the desire that the unions have to reduce the hours that, that people are working from 38 to 35 hours per week. And also to receive uh, some kind of uh, inflation compensation uh, mm. to help them out. I mean, this is this is a, a common thread through a lot. Um, you have a lot of people working for. Well, I mean, the Deutsche Bahn is semi-state-run, so they're somehow state employees, but also privately employed because of the way Deutsche Bahn is constructed. And so the, the, you just see these demands where 
I don't, I don't think anyone would really complain. You, I don't think demands like this are so awful. Mm. Uh, it just, there isn't a lot of discussion happening, which is the, the thing that I'm more concerned about. Uh, there's little um, compromise between the, the rail unions and, and Deutsche Bahn. Equally, there's very little compromise seemingly between the farmers union and the Ample Coalition, mm. Traffic Light Coalition in, in Berlin. And, um, you can see how how there's a lot of there's a lot of undercurrents with especially with the farmers protests that I think are, are worth mm. noting. Now we saw part of that last week when Robert Harbeck, the um, uh, economics minister, forefront member of the the Green Party, and uh, apparently like basically the least popular person in the entire country, not for anything he's particularly done, but certainly because of the media. The media seemed, as Bill Zeitung in particular, Welt, um, the Spr Axel Media, um, Axel Springer Media has, has certainly got a vendetta against Robert Harbeck. Mm. They really, really don't like him. And Harbeck was coming back from holiday last week on a ferry, quite like sort of late mm. in the evening. And um, protesters, demonstrators who had some connection to the farmers' protest tried to storm the ferry he was he was leaving on to such an extent that the ferry he had to be um, removed. Yeah, and he had to be taken and put on a different ferry and then landed much later in the evening. The headline from Bill Zeitung, if you want to understand how much the vendetta is on Robert Harbeck's head, described uh, Robert Harbeck's arrival uh, finally at something at 1.30 a.m. as him sneaking back into Germany. And it was kind of like, nah, it's not really what's happening, is it? And that's kind of a shitty headline to, to approach. But yeah, the, 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 this is one signal that there's there's some extremist elements taking hold within within this protest, mm -hmm. and it's certainly the case that the head of the farmers union came out swiftly after this incident with Robert Harbeck mm. um, and said, "There's no place for the right extremist right in the demonstrations. We don't want right wing and other radical groups with a desire for subversion at our demos." And in fact, Robert Harbeck did another one of his fireside chats that he's become quite famous for he's done a number of them over the last year he gave a sort of piece to camera about eight and a half minutes long that was posted all across the social media and uh and and, and reported on where he talked about the concerns around sedition and uh, people using the uh, farmers strike and the train strikes as a way of subverting democracy um and that's certainly a concern mm -hmm. in this present moment for a lot of people um it's a concern simply if you just look at the protest. Bavaria especially, there's been a spate of, of mini protests in the form of uh, mock gallows with what? effigies of the Traffic Light Coalition and, and others hanging from um, a gallows. And there's been a few of those popped up in Bavaria. And there's a few of the protests across the country yesterday. Uh, and I imagine we'll see more in the, in the coming days. That um, is... That's concerning that is very concerning it's quite it, this is really taking a turn towards the dark side i mean not 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 that anyone was doubting that this could happen i hope well i mean i, I talked we talked before the start of the podcast about a tweet that i put out this morning and it was inflammatory uh, to a certain extent i mean i don't think it didn't swear it didn't say basically it was just a collection of these photos mm. and it said something along the lines of like is this light culture then this is what it is is all about and the responses that i've had i've the only time and, and all the time i've been here and all the time i've been on twitter where people have actually actively told me to get out of the country leave the country if you don't like it leave what and i'm like well that, yeah yeah that's that's been a lot of messages like that today um now i knew what i was doing when i posted it and i accepted that that this might be the, the return but the images that i posted were an image of an effigy hanging from a gallows mm. with politics written on it we've got another one that's a, a banner being held by two protesters saying democraten brings uns den volkstod mm -hmm. so like like democracy brings the death of the people i guess is the translation um another one that says actung jagd and it's um mm -hmm. like um, attention hunting and that is uh, with a picture of the traffic light um and it's from not so subtle reference to uh, the traffic light coalition and there's been there's been a few of these kinds of protests and this is the concern right is that the, the right-wing extremists will infiltrate the protests and try and co-opt them for their own frankly racist and stupid ideas and the, i've read a report today from an expert on extremism who said that it's the first step in avoiding the the right takeover of the protests is for the the top level uh, to denounce the right wing being involved which they've done but the other step is the actual people on the ground challenging people who have got 
gallows or have got offensive banners or shouting offensive stuff and actually either challenging them or mentioning them to the organizers of the protest to go hey this person isn't part of what we're doing here because i think the vast majority of people have sympathy for farmers farmers have a rough time yeah yeah whether in a in a period where we're trying to transition to green energy and trying to we're making a lot of changes to society whether we should be paying tax money to farmers in order to subsidize diesel fuel is questionable and also i think the argument that a lot of people have made is like oh this will put the farmers in dire straits and it'll be really so damaging that many farms will fail and i'm like well if a thousand euros per tractor per year is is enough to kill your industry then your industry probably needs to die like it doesn't seem very fair it needs to be overhauled like you can't subsidize the state can't subsidize industries like it just can't it can't it's not it's not tenable because otherwise why don't we galleria kaufhof this this uh, today um went into um uh receipt was it receivership or was it they went they they, they claimed bankruptcy yeah, again yeah. or insolvency again like again. should we send tax money to make sure Gal yeah again third time um and 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 so should we subsidize department stores as well like that's the question is that it's not really that that and it's not even handed in that way the i th i think it's a i think that comes into it but i also also think it's 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 not a simple thing because you there are certain things in the structure of a nation state that maybe a nation state needs to protect such as a source of food for its people. Because otherwise, I mean, it, look what happened to Germany when Russia invaded Ukraine and suddenly all of Germany's cheap uh, energy disappeared more or less overnight. And that has had ramifications for the whole economy and continues to do so. Mm -hmm. And so if you outsource or become reliant on third parties for certain things which are absolutely critical, such as the supply of food, there is an argument to say, well, we need to have a domestic uh, food supply industry that produces food, even if it's the way it's structured at the moment is, is it, you know, if it was a level playing field, you would let it die and, and let it reform. I mean, this was, of, of all the articles that you found and, and forwarded to us, Nick, there was one article where Harbuck was quoted as, as being extremely mindful of the challenges, actually, that the farming mm. industry is confronted with and seemed to be quite sympathetic to their struggles and was calling out the need for reform within the agricultural industry. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think he's the bad guy, really, in this, in this discussion. And... And I think I have a lot more concern about the chaos agents that are looking to exploit the situation mm. for um, political gain. And, and I think that's what we should be extremely worried about. At the same time, yes, the agricultural industry needs to reform. Well, I think it's, it was reform, but I think the, 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 the problem that farmers face is they don't control the prices for a lot of things. And mm. like the price of pork, for instance, um, has gone down in, in recent years and certainly last year. And that's obviously going to affect you if you're a pork farmer. Um, milk prices mm -hmm. is, is a, a big one as well for dairy farmers. Um, milk prices are, are, are through the floor, um, and it makes it very difficult for producers of of, of milk to, to sort of earn a living. Um, and it and it's also on the individual to demand um, or at least pay more for certain commodities that 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 are being produced it's that question of autarky isn't it the desire to sort of produce all as much as possible within your own country which isn't a bad idea but they're buffeted by globalization and i think i think i have sympathy for them i just don't and i and i and i, and I actually believe the head of the union when he says he doesn't want right-wing protesters the problem is how quickly the right wing seem to have latched onto this topic mm -hmm. um and, and 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 i think that's the thing that's concerning um, and yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I do think it is, it is, it is a worry for a lot of people. Um, it's even more worrying the fact that the government actually reversed a lot of the cuts before the protests happened. Yeah. That's not a good look, is it? I think it, I think they're sticking to their guns now, but I think the, I can't help. Like I, I just see uh, the greens seem to be the ones who get hit by every single 
bit of opprobrium from the media and from opponents, mm -hmm. but it's actually the weakness at the top. It's the weakness of the SPD and the sort of weather vane nature of the FDP. Mm. Whenever the FDP announced something, you better wait 24 hours because you never know. They'll probably denounce it the next day as a mistake or it's the fault of the Greens or something like that. So I feel like the, the Greens have become quickly the whipping boy of, 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 of German politics when actually these are policies that the debate we're having around it is is because of decisions that have been made a decade ago when we talked about the the Schulden Bremse um, a few weeks ago. That is a direct relation to this um, and this inability to invest because of the way the state's constructed. And I think it, we have to keep an eye on it. I'd like to hope that the farmers, the real farmers who have the real real problems and, 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 and are protesting justifiably um, for their industry are able to combat any infiltration by right-wing elements, but I guess we'll know more by the end of the week. Um, and certainly by the end of tomorrow, I think. Mm -hmm. That brings us to the end of the show. We are off to start a fundraiser to send Nick to the Eisteter Botanical Garden. Roll up, roll up, send me to a botanical gardens. Give me 50p or 50 cents. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, which only takes a minute and can really help us. You can also rate us on Spotify, so chuck some stars our way there as well. Retweet us, share a link, or post with the hashtag Decades From Home, all lowercase, on Twitter. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Dillion at Dillialgema. You can tweet me at 40% German. You can also get us on decadesfromhome at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40%german.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All I have to say is thanks and bis zum nächsten Mal. Cheers. Cheers.